0: I like how Lauda is now a character on this podcast that will never hear her, but her presence is supremely felt.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I'm very aware that Lauda will be hearing this and I want to be in my best behavior for her because she's my boo.
0: <laughs> or we can just do like ASMR flirting over here. It's like Lauda, Lauda's is gonna hate that. Hi everyone. It's me, Trisha. It's on bar. This week, we talk about accountability, performativity on social media, and general activism. And if you're listening, we
1: basically solve systemic racism. Let's get into it. Honestly, big stuff has been happening in America this week, and this could not come at a better time, I suppose, or a worse one.
0: I mean, I'm looking at my notes because I started, you know, prepping for this episode last week, and... I feel like literally the day after is when, like, that big boom in the social media campaigns happened, where you see all these corporations starting to post, you see your friends doing the tagging, you and, like, ten people BLM chains, Mm. which is a big no-no. That's performative, folks.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess to give some context, right, it all started with a meme. It all started with a meme. (laughs) It's all being derived from, anyways. Yes. So this meme, right, is we are the virus It's hysterical, you know, the dolphins came back, guys, we are the virus. (laughs) There is some truth to it, kids. Um, So it starts because Corona is afflicting millions, right? But despite the disease, apparently, a lot of other things are being exposed environmental issues, socioeconomic inequalities,
0: failings brutality. of capitalism,
1: <laughs> yeah, the general failings of capitalism, you know, that fun
0: stuff, have been exposed with this idea of we are the virus. Very Fascinating. funny because the ultimate campaign that's come from coronavirus is the hashtag we are in this together which is not the case. You see celebrities posting it as a way to absolve themselves of any need to donate any money. I don't know, it just feels like what's the word for it? sweeping stuff under the rug. I suppose is the phrase. Yeah. It does
1: kind of feel like a like a blanket <laughs> like a blanket for all things good and bad, we are in this together. But I do think we are the virus. It's like a weird combat to that. It's like challenging to that sort of mentality where it's like people in and of themselves are problematic and will destroy themselves. And I'm like, oh, so I guess we ain't together. I guess we are not in this together.
0: I think the pro- the overall problem with that statement is that there's just no. The idea is not the problem. It's the fact that there's no nuance or context to like add to that conversation. You know, it's just the punchline. There's no build up to the joke. Yeah. Granted but it's also human very, lives and they shouldn't be a joke. I just want to
1: clarify. But it's also very easy, I think, especially in terms of social media and things like we are the virus to point a finger at humanity as like a large general public and say, you're the problem and only include yourself as like a like a small part in the bigger issue, but the truth is, it's not we, it's me, it's I am the virus, because you are, and I am, you know, yeah. and I think the recognition of your own individual part, however great or small, is frankly more important than pointing the finger at humanity in general.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that mindset is especially relevant to the other half of our conversation, which is the idea that you post a meme, you post like a photo of someone suffering, and you're fine. Because if you know about the event, then you're already doing half the work, which is not the case. It's only like 10% is acknowledgement.
1: Yeah, no, it is true. And also the funny thing about this idea of we are the virus, it comes from a place where people are clearly recognizing the toxicity of human culture. Like Mm -hmm. they're clearly recognizing the problems in society and they're joking about it without having to find a solution. Which is what I think is so funny is that we are the virus implies that without people, there is resolution. Like there's some natural resolution that just happens once people are removed from the equation. Yeah. I don't think that's true. (laughs) You can't just create all these things like systems and institutions and all these things and then act like, oh, if people just left though, they would be fine. I'm like, no, they would still be in place and they would still suck. People just enforce them.
0: Yeah. You know, and not all of these cases of the earth being restored are true. In fact, these there's this uh, article called Fake Animal News Abounds on Social Media's Coronavirus Upends Life on National Geographic that has proved that most of these reports about like dolphins coming back are fake. So there are right. people who are trying to promote this utopian engineering theory to the human race. And I don't know, I feel like they're, the intention is to call people to action but there is no call to action that is being specified or like laying out a groundwork on how you can do better for example in like sustainability you know
1: yeah no that's exactly what it is it's like it's observing an issue and then stating it but not giving any means of solving it yes And that, too, in the most uneducated way, because, right, like, obviously some of these things are not real, like how many dolphins are coming back or, like, species coming back to their original place. It doesn't work like that. To reiterate my last point, just because you take people out of the equation, they've made a mess. The mess still exists. Just because they disappear after the mess is made does not mean it's not there. I do also think We Are the Virus is a very interesting way of making the assumption that people... Cannot solve things amongst themselves. Like I think it's a very uh, interesting way of suggesting that it, it's impossible for reconciliation in humanity. Like people need to leave, and then there's solution, but amongst people, there is no way. So I kind of pose the question: is there a way to create resolution amongst people between them? Or is it the meme right? We're just a miserable, <laughs> horrible, horrible planet. And we got
0: to go. Yeah, it's really polarizing. I didn't think of it that way. You know, giving up on talking to people. I guess that applies to, I don't know if we talked about this on last week's episode, or maybe we just talked, you talked about it before, where it's just like this recognition, at least in the cases of these two different presidencies, that before we weren't even listening to each other, and now we still aren't. Nothing has changed. You know, it's only more visible, these problems. So I'm wondering if maybe at least we're seeing people trying to have these conversations right now in response to what's happened.
1: Right. Yeah. I think it's very interesting, though, because I would argue that people are only trying for the things that seem imminently concerning to them. Um, I've always held this view, and you can, ov- you can obviously disagree, but I've always held this view that people tend to care most about what is most in- inconvenient to them, and if it's not inconvenient enough, then they don't really care. And so I also think that we are the virus of sort of this picking and choosing of what humanity's really, what the biggest issue that humanity has, like, caused. Um, sometimes some people will say the environment. Some people will say it's, you know, trump supporting some people would say it's racism some people will say it's i don't corona you know like at some point we also have to acknowledge that all of these things are mutually exclusive like one does not exist without the other one and they all stem from like the same place but i do think that this meme also tries to pick and choose what is important or what is like ruined and what is not mm. And I'm like, you can't just choose to turn a blind eye to the other messes. You can't just be like, oh, this has resolved. The world is perfect. It's like kind of what you said about this utopian vision. Mm. Um, even if one thing is repairing itself, it's one thing. And we have a lot of things.
0: Yes. I feel like the the phrase for what you just described is oppression Olympics. At least I've seen that like sardonically used. I've never heard of that. Oh, Um, well, I, being people of color with like immigrant parents, I think we already intuitively know what oppression Olympics are. Like, for example, when you're complaining about how maybe the black community is suffering right now, and then your immigrant parents are like, but what about my suffering? (laughs) What about my American dream? It's just like, well, the suffering of one community does not mean another community is not suffering. They're not comparable, comparable, comparable. Um. They're different, but it's still inequity. You can still care about other people's suffering, you know? It's not exclusive, as you said. Yeah.
1: That's the very interesting thing about corona in and of itself. Like, other than the virus really, truly killing off half the planet, like, rest in peace, y'all. But the interesting thing about it, too, is, like, when it hit this country especially, not only did we fail to act as quickly as other countries, (laughs) and we acted so, so poorly, we also failed in our recognition of oppression in this country. Like, for some reason, again, we treated the virus as if it was a standalone ivory tower of sorts. Yeah. You know? The great and was equalizer. Like, right. As if it was hitting everyone at the same rate and everyone had to quarantine. They were all doing the same quarantine. Everyone was in this together. It's like we stated earlier. But what ended up happening is obviously people left out the thought that once it hit the economy, the people that were going to get hit the most were people who were already poor. And that too, people who lived in poor communities have worse access or lower access, I guess, to healthcare and things like that and to protection. Also things like shelter, public transport, the things that maybe I could avoid or you could avoid, there's a lot of people that I can't avoid. This idea of staying home from work, people can't do that. But again, it was this picking and choosing of problems. It's Corona seemed like the most imminent issue so that's the one we chose
0: i remember in the beginning of the at least uh our lockdown over here there was a lot of shame on people who were essential workers like grocery store workers there were the people who at least worked in the mta um and you see these photos of people on the subways and people condemning them before realizing like these this is their livelihood they are the reason you were able to stay home so comfortably
1: That You know what? Not to out my family, but I'm going to out my family. (laughs) I had a person in my family post something recently about people breaking, quote unquote, breaking lockdown. Mm. However, I can only speak for the East Coast, obviously, but New Jersey and New York have let up on quite a lot of their rules. Currently, they've really been like, you can have 10 people in your house. You can have 25 outside as long as you follow social distancing. I know for New Jersey, our beaches are open. And personally, I'm like, you know what? If the government said I could do it, I can do it. But also, like, who cares about the government? I could have done it anyways. No offense. Um, (laughs) But it's also a choice you have to make that, like, okay, your government says it's okay. People are starting to go out. How long do you choose when to sit back and be like, I think I want to make a more – when do you decide you're more educated than mm. the people in power or the rest of humanity? Because if other people are going out, it doesn't mean that they're right, but it also means you should probably consider your position. And so this person in my family essentially called out all these people who are going out and just said, how dare you? So many people have died. Like, God forbid that I go to the grocery store now, all of you probably got infected at the beach on the weekend and I have a daughter and I go home and now she wants to have a social distance play date and now everybody's at risk because I went to the grocery store and all of you went to the beach. And I'm sitting here thinking, but that's not the real problem, is it? I don't think the real problem is people choosing to go out, Mm. right? Or people choosing what to focus on, what not to. I think the real problem is just acting in a way that shows some sort of consideration for the people around you i'm cool with you going to the beach i'm cool with you caring about the environment but in both of those situations respect everything else so like if you're going to the beach wear your mask stay away from me stay like 10 feet away from me honestly please if you care about the environment more than you maybe care about racial politics fine but when i go on a protest for black lives matter don't come up in there yelling at me about you know, God knows what, or like saying, I can't break a store or loot a shop. Like, nothing. you have to understand context before anything else, I think.
0: At least in the past couple of years, context is something that seems to have been missing from the conversation, and it's only been pointed up very infrequently. But at least from my general timeline, I feel like the people I follow are focusing on context right? Like this week, we've had reports of police officers kneeling in solidarity with a lot of protesters. And then not 10 minutes later, the NYPD uh, started attacking protesters. And this is something at least I've seen frequently now. And I wonder, maybe it's just our, I don't know what to say. I feel like emotional labor has been exhausted. And also, it feels very, silly to say now is the time, because it's always the time to change. Yes. You know, um, I and mean? I'm wondering if maybe being in pandemic has exasperated people's tolerance for this, and that might be the yes. case.
1: But I also do think, again, here's the thing about picking and choosing, I think this, especially with this issue that's going on with George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery, has existed since arguably Rodney King and before, Um, but the riots or protests, I hate calling it a riot because that's not even what I think it is, but the protests that have come out of it Mm. have been happening for so long. But I think, and here's where I really want to get into where we were talking about social media and maybe like branch out on that point a little, that sort of movement has never existed prior to like modern age, which is your social media justice seeking, vigilantism. Um, And so I feel like with these protests, they've been happening forever. But And I hate to argue this point, but I feel like white allyship has now noticed in recent years. And that's why it's become so prominent. Because I feel like people of color, arguably black people, have been doing it forever. They've been protesting forever. But once... I think allyship gets into the mix and like allies who have more power, which generally tend to be non-people of color, they post about it. They create the sort of attention that it can garner because all these years, ain't nobody listening. All of a sudden you get social media, you get all these people posting, all these people in power posting, all these celebrities posting. Right. It becomes something more concrete.
0: I feel like, In this vein, we should also talk about how cancel culture has motivated a lot of activism as well, you know, like, that's why we have a lot of performative activism, because even if it's not the case that you believe in it, no one wants to have their project shut down or who they are shut down, you know. And yeah there's also this talk of uh silence as being complicit, and I think it's like this fear of being outed as a racist when in fact that 's a whole different conversation, but it 's the fear of being labelled before you can defend yourself, which is something the black community has always been suffering for. But now I feel like white people feel like they're on the chopping block mm. for it, and so mm. the minute they experience a little bit of that discomfort, even if it's not on the same level or spectrum or whatever that's part of the motivator. It's just fear.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I think there's this huge fear, especially again in the age of social media politics of not doing enough. Mm. Um, And I think people tend to go for the extremely reactionary thing. So they'll be like, if you're not doing the biggest thing, then you're doing nothing. So if you're not attending the protest and getting tear gassed, you've done nothing. But I think that sort of mentality and this kind of goes into cancel culture makes it very easy for other people to, to create more division between them Mm. because this idea that like, if you're not doing that thing, then you're not an ally or you're not this or you're not that. And I think people just keep wanting to revoke everybody's humanity from them in this weird cycle of just like wanting to be the best version of a human being. Mm. Um, which I think is absolutely insane because I'm realizing too, it's great to do the big things, right? It is great to be able to to enact change on a much greater level by getting in the face of the oppressor, you know, doing certain things that you feel are necessary. And that obviously works. But I think people also need to realize that the small things need to happen too. You need to fight with your racist parents. You do. I'm sorry. You can't yeah. let that slide and go to a protest. Absolutely. And Right. And then act like you did something because you didn't because if you're not fighting them, then what are you doing? You know, as a teacher, you know, in my head, I'm like, it's important for teachers to education systems, people who work for education systems to sit there and actually have conversations with their kids about bias and racism and environmental issues and address these things in a classroom setting where they feel safe. It's important to do the small things of dismantling structures in your life before you, you know, again, it's like, it's important to observe that we are the virus first before you start to dismantle the virus,
0: you know? (laughs) Take a shot every time we say the phrase. (laughs) Seriously, it's
1: okay to, it's okay to go slower than everybody else. You know, some people are more comfortable jumping right into the fire because that's what they, that they've maybe done all the other steps, you know, maybe they just made it there and they said, I'm going to jump into that. But Not everybody
0: is a protester. Not
1: everybody is a Malcolm X. Not everybody is a Martin Luther King.
0: Not everybody has the means to financially donate, which is something we see a lot of this week. Yeah.
1: Right. Some people just have to be your day-to-day, you know, advocates who fight for the right thing on a very literal basis, like just fighting people on the subway or fighting someone who's yelling at a homeless person, you know. Just fighting those little small things is like, important to to the way society thinks
0: but at least i feel like what we can do is concretely say what not to do if you're worried about what you can do
1: right you know yeah that is true too and i i do want to bring it to social media politics because that's a little bit of a gray area for me and i do want to talk it out in this setting um but that is especially a place in which people feel like they have the power to constantly tell people what not to do. And here's the thing, I'm all for telling people what is not the right thing to do especially as a person of color. Obviously, I do not ever ever try and transgress lines between because I'm South Asian, I try not to move into the area of blackness and I try not to move into the area of Asianness. I try not to move into the area of, you know, latinhood. They're not my spaces they were not meant for me. And that's cool too. However, I do feel very comfortable telling somebody as a person of color in general, I think I know what is right or wrong for me and what is right or wrong for my general community in a sense that you're just like overstepping your bounds. And in the same way that I can recognize my spaces, I think allies need to recognize their space you can't just like accumulate (laughs) you can't just be in everybody's space that's not allyship allyship is staying in your own space but using that space especially if it's a space of power to advocate for somebody else's yeah you know um which is where social media really gets me here is because and i really i do emphasize the deaths of a lot of African-American and black individuals that have happened recently, like Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, George Floyd, such and such and such. And
0: honestly, unfortunately, the list could go on forever. Like Tony McDade, the black trans man as well, whose death was not included in most of the social media stuff I've seen this week. Which is to say there are a lot of people, but there are also these niche communities that just can't be forgotten. It's overwhelming.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you think about it too, right, the George Floyd community, while it's a large community of allies and Black people, Mm -hmm. it also is primarily, arguably, (laughs) cisgender. There's no mention of, like, any sort of gendered perspective because the Mm -hmm. assumption is that if they're a person of color, then they're a person of color, period. Right. that's it. Um, which is great, except people, you know, intersectionality exists. And if we're going to consider George Floyd the end all be all, then we also have to consider this trans man in the mix. We also have to consider that as another offense. Because I don't think there should be separation between.
0: No, because as we all know, the black trans community has been facing a lot of personal attacks from the police. I know last year, at least 26 black trans bodies were brutalized and those don't seem to strike the same amount of anger that they do with George Floyd. Yeah.
1: It's, but I also think the, empathy, and here's again where I, and I hate to pick on, on white allyship, but, and it's not everybody, but it is, you know, the issue with being a non-person of color but also being a non-person in that community. And I'll argue, and I'll say this about South Asians too, they have the same issue where they're stuck on this idea of young black and brown men Mm. being targeted. And while that is true, again, it's not one issue. You can't just decide to pick and choose that young black and brown men are the pinnacle of trauma. Like they are the ones suffering the most and then it kind of filters down to everybody else. Right. It's not that they're targeted more... I would argue than say black and brown trans people you know but or even just black women actually who suffer quite a lot during this pandemic in general and the medical care that they're receiving but it's also a matter of what people have decided to focus on and what garners the most attention because if you show somebody a 12 year old black boy um actually Have you seen the picture of the little boy sitting at the diner next to a cop? And the cop's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the black boy's like, alive.
0: No, I haven't. That sounds awful. (laughs) Yeah,
1: everybody keeps reposting that. And here's the thing about social media. Again, it's like this weird repetition of trauma. Yes. But without any context. And the trauma is aimed at activism. People think if you can repeat the trauma quite literally repeat the trauma.
0: Are you referencing the videos of Floyd and Cooper and Abari? They're murder.
1: But here's the thing, the things that they repeat are also the things that they want you to focus on. So it's like, again, I stand by this cartoon, which is this little boy, it's a little black boy sitting next to this cop. And this cop is smiling and goes, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the little boy has a little cartoon bubble that says, alive. It is an emotional pull a lot of the things we repost, a lot of the things we post are all aimed at reactionary response and aimed at pulling at emotions, which I think is so ironic because if you need to do that to get someone to care, then we're not getting to the root of the problem at all. I can't keep showing you little black and brown boys and be like, this is, look how sad this is. These are children that died. It's like, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it shouldn't matter that they were children. It shouldn't matter that it was somebody else's son or somebody's husband or whatever. Like the fact that people also keep saying, you know, this guy was a father and a husband and whatever. And I'm like, it was also a person and we can't get to that yet. That's crazy. If you need some sort of emotional tug to get yourself involved, then we need to talk as a society before we even jump into combating issues and activism and all that great stuff you need to first sit down and assess why you feel the need to post certain things or post these things and be like isn't that so sad because the conversation you really should be having is yeah it's sad but what do we do from there and I think a lot of people have gotten there but I think also a lot of people are just like it's so sad and if you don't feel sad you should because look he was this this and this
0: That's actually part of the conversations I've been having with uh, some family members and friends. It's strange trying to get people to care, especially when they're so focused on themselves, their own problems, and if they don't follow in the same line of thought, the ways that in terms of like protests and looting and stuff, the way these businesses are suffering, you know, it's always trying to redirect the conversation to someone else's suffering instead of the one you're trying to enlighten. Yeah.
1: And we also just regenerate trauma, I think. As a society, we, we have this weird fetish of pain. We, we It's not that we enjoy it necessarily, but I think people like to see that it occurs to make themselves feel some sort of like human feeling, to feel like they're actually important, right? Because if you witness trauma or if you experience rage, you can say that I've been a part of this movement or this whatever. However, I don't know if I... And obviously, again, in the case of um, Ahmaud Arbery, social media was a lot, it was a huge part in getting the two offenders arrested and charged, which is great, but I don't know if social media allyship is a real thing. I don't, I'm not sure I have faith in it, because I think it garners attention that can, that can get specific tasks done I'm not sure that it is a good way of of rooting of getting to roots Um, because I think it's a highly reactionary platform I think it is an emotional platform I think these things are made for personal bias for subjectivity and that's great like you know you can go out and say what you need to say or express how you want to express but at some point we also have to recognize that social media is filtered through our lens, like the people we follow, the people we let follow us, things like that. And it's like the people you really want to get at are not even following you. So what what is the purpose? Where are you getting at? Well, then I
0: guess I would redirect it to what you've said earlier, which is you need to start talking to your racist family members and friends. And if that's the case, if that's who follow you, it's simply a tool for education. You know, it, I've, don't see, I agree, I don't think it's a platform that's the solution. It is simply a tool and it's the most basic information you can pass down, right? Because you see a lot of posts that are like 10 ways to combat anti-blackness in your community or in your family. And sure, I'll repost those because I know that the people, at least I hope that the people who follow me, that's something that can be useful. But I also hope, at least what I'm doing for myself, is I'm jumping off of that. I don't know if everyone has the attention span to jump off of that, but I'm hoping that's something that can be triggered soon.
1: Right. That is my greatest issue, I think, is that we have a very easy time as a public stating issues on social media Mm. and then not doing anything about them. And I want that jump to occur. Like, personally, I'm kind of sick of, again, all these observations of human fault, Without any sort of solution, and I think if we're not solution building, then I'm not really sure what we're doing.
0: I guess right now we're in a on our way to a conversation phase, right? You know, which I mean, obviously the timing of these things is awful. I mean, it, wouldn't it be nice to live in a post racial society? But at least I know from my own community. What are you
1: talking about? We do, <laughs> you're, right,
0: you're right. You're right. I can't see my own brown skin. <laughs> but what I'm seeing from my own community, at least I'm part of a theater company and I am the only person of color, um, on a 15 member board org, which I realized last night. And today I was in another council meeting for that. Again, one of the only people of color. But what I'm seeing right now is that at least these white people that I'm working with, they want to have these conversations now and they're trying to get something done about it. I can't speak for anyone else's, but at least it's something I'm happy to see. I'm upset that it happened because of all this rage and this need to perform on social media to be a good activist, quote-unquote. Yeah. I don't think there's do. such a thing as a good activist, but... Yeah. I mean, I
1: like that point about performativity, too, because I agree with you. I think a lot of people are willing to have the conversation, but I think they're willing to have the conversation at the expense of minority groups. I think they want education and i'm all for and i love i love i love all the people that are posting resources on social media instead of just talking and this is actually a dichotomy i would really like to talk to you about um the sort of black lives matter chain tag yes versus the people reposting um safety gear for protests, people reposting where you can donate or where you can go or who you can call. Yeah. So here's the thing. Here's where I love social media is if you're presenting resources to a public, I love that because that's essentially where I want to get to. It's I don't want to have to educate you. I want to give you the resources where you can go educate yourself if you so take the initiative. Absolutely. If you really care, here are the resources and I love it. But I think a lot of people are not there yet. And what they really want is this sort of Black Lives Matter tag chain where they can tag themselves or get tagged and then tag a bunch of other people and say, Black Lives Matter, hashtag, heart, heart, kiss, kiss.
0: What's also emotionally manipulative about that is that part of the messaging is tag 10 people you know won't break the chain. Right. Which is... It's trying to hold your friends accountable to supporting this ideology without actually doing anything about it. Right.
1: Again, without putting in the work or looking anything up or without educating them or yourselves on what you're actually saying. Um, And I think that's essentially what's happened with things like Me Too, Black Lives Matter, Um, you know, We Are the Virus. It's this whole wanting to... It's everyone jumping on a label without understanding what's behind it. Mm. Um, And so I think a lot of people, especially on social media, come from a place where they feel comfortable behind their screen saying Me Too or Black Lives Matter. But I'm not really sure any of these people know what that entails, because it's not just some sort of label that you can hide under and be anti-racist. You have to actively be anti-racist in order to claim the label you have to actually be or actually have suffered or care about people's sexual trauma or their literally workplace trauma or whatever to yeah. be able to say yeah me too because I also feel that as emphatically as you do and I think a lot of people are just not willing to take that next step so again I go back to my original point whereas I think a lot of people just jump 30 steps and fall into the protest and they want to blow up a police car and that's great but before you do that, you need to understand why you're going out and doing that, you yeah. know? But I guess that brings me to like my, the real crux of this is like, where does that leave us, right? We can have these conversations for decades and ages and wherever, but where we are now, which is in this weird murky era of observation. And mm. try, I, it's, I argue that we're in an era of, we're in that weird limbo between observing issues and trying to fix them. We're not at a solution. But we're not just sitting there and going, this is a problem. I think especially a lot of the generations now are trying to find a solution. And I'm not sure they know which one is the right one yet. So where does that leave us? Because we are kind of in a sort of moral limbo as a public. Mm. And the only thing we can really argue is that the meme got it wrong. You know, the meme erases our agency in the relationships with the world around us. And obviously we have that. We are autonomous individuals and we can all work towards solution building but i guess the question really is
0: how i guess what i just keep coming back to is just i hate it because i feel like this word has been so overused but just listening i feel like it's just having the conversation until something comes up yeah right now i think part of what are, well, short-term girls' right goals right now are donating right. and signing petitions because there's an emphasis on getting at least your local and state officials to make direct change to your community. I suppose people would say voting is the solution, but long-term, I don't think it is. <laughs> I think long-term is finding new systems that work for us and figuring out what that means.
1: Right. I mean, I definitely agree with that. I think... And also beyond the point of just listening, I think there's also this matter of speaking. I think they kind of go hand in hand, right? So like part of it is trying to understand whatever you feel is like other to you. But the other part of trying to solution build as a community as a as a global you know community is is speaking when you can. It's speaking and sharing even if it makes you uncomfortable yes i've been honestly even if you don't see the problem or you think and i get this from people a lot where they're like okay i agree to an extent but after that point i think it's like over dramatic to react in certain ways i'm like okay I, i appreciate you sharing but also then there has to be a point where you have to allow yourself to try and understand that And also speak against it. Because you know what? Maybe you are right. Maybe that's a a fair point. But if you never speak to anybody about it and you never hear the other side, then there's no way we can all create any sort of unity. And we just continue
0: to perpetuate old cycles. Yeah. Conversation of speaking. I just know that I've heard a lot from my white friends and colleagues is the repetition of the phrase I know I need to listen more which is yeah just like the chains and just like we are the virus at least today I had a meeting where um I was with uh our black dean for our arts and comm and we were talking to a lot of at least nine white people. And they were trying to talk about how all of them did not know what to say in response to this uh, event. And they were trying to talk about solutions. And I realized that it was only after when the Dean spoke and when I spoke that they were suddenly gracious, that they knew exactly what to say, as if we had to give them permission on what to think and what to say. Does that make sense? I feel like white allies may not know what to think and say, and so they'll piggyback on top of it because they're afraid of speaking and sharing their discomfort with what's going on. I feel like somehow there needs to be a validation we give to what they say before they can actually have, you know, the ping pong of conversation. Does this make sense?
1: Yeah, no, I do see what you're saying. I do feel like a lot of white people are uncomfortable with broaching the subject.
0: So I'm wondering what permission needs to be given on like a national scale to have these conversations.
1: Well, I guess it's not even just permission. I do see what you're saying, but it's also this sort of silent encouragement that that you are safe wherever you are and that you'll be safe if you choose to speak, which in a way, arguably, white people have always had nationally, right? Because I think, but it, it, again, we have to qualify what, what white people have always had that, right? And it's the fact that, you know, Trump kind of exists and he allows white supremacy to exist. And so people who have those ideologies feel very safe and very comfortable actually making other people uncomfortable because they know that they, they have the validation. They have the national permission, um, and they don't really need to get it verbally. It's just sort of a, a, a cultural understanding of making space for that, for those sort of things. So I think it's, again, it's not like a standalone thing. Um, we as people are not islands. We can't just decide things on our own. And so like white people can't decide to enroach our space and they cannot decide when to cut it off. But in the same way, people of color also cannot just decide that white people are bad or have nothing good to say or cannot be a part of solution building for our communities both sides kind of have to make the choice to allow this like bridging to occur and that doesn't really have to be a verbal i don't i don't think has to be like a verbal permission it just sort of has to be a cultural context thing (laughs) it has to be a sort of cultural understanding that whatever you say to me i will take but I will also give feedback, you know.
0: So can you speak to your student teaching experience last semester? I remember you taught in a high school with uh, a mostly white population and you had a unit on social justice.
1: Yes.
0: Um, So we can have like a more localized look at what this conversation can be.
1: Yeah. So I did teach in a middle grade socioeconomic high school um mostly middle class upper middle class kids and mostly white I taught about six periods and I had two african-american children all day one latina girl first period yeah and that Yep, there you go that's about it um What's interesting about that experience, though, is I did teach a, yeah, so I taught a social justice unit in which I assigned the kids a social justice movement, um, like climate change, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, Um, and I basically had them research it and then create informative posters that they could share with each other about it, and there was really nothing to that lesson or to that unit other than getting kids to understand where their ideologies come from and maybe getting them aware of what the real world really looks like as opposed to sort of their microcosm at home and turns out a lot of my kids were trump supporters that does not make people inherently bad by the way fyi to anyone listening that does not make you inherently bad i'm not saying that their views were like horrible It just turns out they happen to be those types of Trump supporters that also believed in some racist and prejudiced ideologies. And so I once taught a lesson on the Pledge of Allegiance because I was like, you know what, you guys are clearly not understanding why it's important to look at these things. So let me come to the level of a student and maybe address what they see at school every day and be like, this is how it is, but on a bigger scale for other people. So I kind of had them address them saying the Pledge of Allegiance and why do they do that? And what does the Pledge of Allegiance even mean? And all of a sudden I kind of realized all these kids had either said that they were conditioned to say it or that they, you know, respected America and that's why they said it. And I said, that's great. I only had three students and they were all students of color, three students who said, I don't want to say it. I would just feel uncomfortable though. If I stayed seated, I feel like people would judge me. Mm -hmm. And then we all had a conversation about where that came from, like where that feeling of like, and I guess this goes back to this earlier conversation of space, of giving people the safe space that they need to feel comfortable enough to say their truth before you decide to challenge it or combat it or judge it. And so, you know, I addressed the Pledge of Allegiance history because I realized too that none of these kids knew where it came from. And I said, y'all stand for this every day. Every single day you get up and you stand for it and you say it and you have no idea what it means. You have no idea. You just like regurgitate it and you have no idea what you're saying. And so I spoke to them kind of about where it came from and how it was sort of a patriotic thing that kind of turned into a religious thing that also turned into the anti-communist thing <laughs> under God, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and this idea of what, what is a republic and what does it mean to be under God? Who's God? Which God? you know indivisible what does that mean um when we say liberty for all who is all because i guarantee you when they made it it didn't include some of you <clears throat> and so you know once my kids kind of got there what happened afterward was was crazy to me because we had that whole conversation and a lot of my kids were like yeah i didn't even know that was true i didn't know anything about it the next day those three students that had spoken up had stopped standing. They had just stopped standing for it. They just stayed seated. And for the rest of the time I was there, they did not stand for the pledge. And nobody said anything, and I didn't mention it. I wasn't about to be like, nice job, you three. But I was just kind of like, "It all it takes, I think. And again, it's like me doing this unit and me starting off with the pledge and having them recognize kind of the own like, the little oppressive behaviors in their own lives, mm. I think, got them more invested in realizing, oh, my God, what is the bigger scope of this? Like, when I get out of high school, what is going to happen to me? Because for some of them, they, I think they realized by doing that unit, you know, the ones who are looking at Black Lives Matter, the boys who are looking at me too, funnily enough, you know, realize, like, oh, my God, I could easily have fallen prey to any of these things. I could be that guy that just pushes too hard and doesn't even realize when he's being the worst and i was like yeah you could so i'm really glad you're reading this (laughs) because it's very easy it's very easy to become the oppressor it is not so easy to realize oppression exists Mm. um and so i think uh, like i said before it is a part of as individuals it is a part of our our duty to be responsible for others in a in a way to be responsible for what they know and what they don't know and how we can help them. And if you're not thinking like that, then you should be. Because if you don't want to help other people, then I'm not really sure what you want to (laughs) do. As a person, I'm not really sure where you're trying to go then.
0: I'm torn between feeling heavy from all of this week, but also there's just something very hopeful about what you just shared. And how when you bring the space to someone, they find ways to apply it to their own lives. And I guess that's what I'm still figuring out in the conversations I'm having with, like, family members and friends.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a easier. It is a much easier thing to do. In solid institutions, like in schools, because I have a little bit of autonomy over what I can say to a group of kids, and I have to—they have to legally be there. It is much easier <laughs> to keep them there yeah. and have them listen. But that's always an issue, you know. And I think even with high school children, I think people don't give them enough credit in their own in their own lives. And I don't think a lot of them feel like they have control over their own lives, which is a feeling I think a lot of people of color feel their whole lives. Right. Um, but white people only feel when they're children, and so I think the the earlier you start having these conversations, and the more adamant you are about having them, it becomes much easier to navigate that space and sort of push the space of conversation That's into being, into existence.
0: There's actually this fantastic account on Instagram called the Conscious Kid. I don't know if you've seen their posts. Um, no. But it's, it's this fantastic nonprofit organization that focuses on teaching adults how to have these conversations with students, with kids, with peers. They're the ones that are responsible for like that pyramid uh, post that's going around, which is distinguished oh, from overt. Okay. overt supremacy. And I think, I don't know, at least personally for me, that's where I turn to on social media to find a resource to have these conversations. So that's you one know, example that. of how we can use it Because it's an account that provides the jumpstart, I think, that we're looking for to bring the conversation from social media to real life. And so I guess it's these platforms that we have to highlight on a more, um, on a larger scale uh, to lead these conversations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a great thing to use resources in your favor, especially when you're up against a really stubborn opponent. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so it's always it's good to
1: accumulate. yeah it's always good to accumulate everything you can in your defense or in the defense of your point especially if it's the right point if you're on the wrong side of history uh <laughs> accumulate all the resources you want but the rest of us will come will come fist
0: to blaze yes the wrong side of history <laughs> i think it's very funny to point when This is like a whole different tangent, but it just reminds me of uh, people talking about what they would have done during the suffrage movement or like World War II and the Holocaust. And then people will use these as examples to say something of that nature is happening now and you're doing nothing. I guess it's just the need is, again, it comes to if you're not experiencing it personally, then you're not going to think about it, which is the same. You can criticize the people who did nothing in those uh, events as well.
1: yeah. But it's also, I, I take issue with a lot of these things where people refer to the past um, <laughs> as a sort of learning curve for the future. And they're like, you can't repeat this. Or like, you know, mm. this is what happened whenever. And I'm like, but I, I see it. I see where you're trying to go with it. Maybe is that all these things led to where we are today. And that's true. But I also don't think we should focus so heavily on the past as if we're still rooted in it, although it may feel like it. I think some people need to take a good hard look at the reality in which they live in and be like, okay, but I exist now and how will my understanding of the past influence that versus how will my reality now be related to the past? Because it doesn't really matter Mm. how it's related to the past. What really matters is how you can use that knowledge to fix it. (laughs) And if you can't, then forget about it. Sorry, but just check it because who cares?
0: I guess now if we're talking about the future, maybe we can provide ways for uh, people our listeners to uh, get some literature. Remember last week yes. we were talking about Afrofuturism? If we're talking about the future and you're looking yes. for solutions on envisioning a future with the Black community, um, right. definitely check out Octavia Butler, uh, Janelle Monet. Um, there are some... there. I want to, I found this Google Drive with a bunch of resources on reading materials, free PDFs. There are over a hundred in there. Um, I'm going to text it (laughs) to Lauda or whatever, and we can put it on our Anchor platform. But I think that's super good. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Obviously, also looking into just concepts, I'm not asking any of you as our listeners to go read anything, but... Look into certain Fair. things yourself. You know, look at prominent black leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois, look into um, Booker T. Washington, look into your Malcolm X's.
0: Angela uh, Davis, Bell Hooks, Audre
1: Lorde. Audre Lorde, James Baldwin. You know, obviously, these are names some of you have probably heard. Go and read about them. Actually, go and do some deep dive into the philosophy. Don't just know who they are. Know what they stand for.
0: And also note the fact that MLK is not the peaceful man that you think he was. This man was a radical democratic socialist. Read his letter from Birmingham jail. It is one of the most amazing takes on something that is happening today.
1: Yeah. Um... And I guess just read up on your space, whoever you are out there. Read up where your space is and read up how you can uh, kind of expand it to include other people. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Big shout out to Kieran Choi and his brother, Connor Choi. Check them out. You can find them on YouTube. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram. And also, big thank
0: you to our sound designer, Laura Feliz. She is a recent graduate of TCNJ's graphic design program. Check out her Instagram for more information. Women of Dolor aims to alienate no one and address everyone in discussing topics of culture, society, and humanity in
1: a way that bridges gaps of understanding and illuminates misinformation.